The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Welcome to this week's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we've got the latest AV news. I bring you behind-the-scenes details of my life in gadgets this week. And Phil Hinton hosts yet another Home Cinema Roundtable discussion. This week's, this week's Audio-Visual News. Sub-base B units from RHEL, new AV power from Marantz, Onkyo do Hi-Fi, JMO do Lifestyle with HDMI, and noise-cancelling headphones from Sennheiser. We kick off our news this week with some heavyweight sub-bass units from RHEL Acoustics. Seen for the first time at the recent Bristol Sound & Vision show, the company's new B-series hits stores from this month. Comprising three models, the B-Series is described by RHEL as an entirely new generation of sub-bass system that bridges the gap between the award-winning R-Series models and RHEL's venerable flagship Stenta and Studio designs. Suited to high-end music reproduction and flagship multi-channel systems alike, the B-Series boasts ultra-modern high-power amplifiers, high-tech materials and acoustic tuning synonymous with RHEL's more esoteric sub-bass systems. The new system incorporates a forward-firing long-throw driver in the patented twin-chamber-ported cabinet, with RHEL's patented balanced arm loading to produce dynamic attack and bass depth with equal refinement. With up to 500-watt RMS high-current amplifiers and massive power supplies as standard, the range can deliver low frequencies down to a remarkable 13Hz. Plus, like all RHEL designs, the B-Series offers both high-level and low-level inputs, supporting main speakers and 0.1 channel input for home cinema LFE. The standard and 0.1 inputs can be used simultaneously and individually trimmed to make the speakers flexible enough to handle both music and movies. Marantz has announced a new HDMI-enabled 7.1 receiver due to hit stores this month. The SR6001 boasts among its many talents up conversion to HDMI, 7.1 channel playback, and Odyssey room calibration. Other features include a conservatively stated 100 watts across each of its seven channels, two HDMI 1.2 inputs with switching that are compatible with 720p, 1080i and 1080p signals from all analogue sources to HDMI, with interlaced to progressive processing. The latest in advanced 32-bit digital signal processing circuitry, automatic room acoustic calibration with Multi-Q by Odyssey, and Cirrus Logic 192kHz 24-bit audio DACs for each channel. The unit will retail for around £800. Now, leading home theatre company, Onkyo, have announced two new hi-fi products for the UK which are due in March. First up is the Onkyo A9355 amplifier, which boasts audiophile-pleasing technologies in a fresh-looking digital chassis. Available in black or silver and based around Onkyo's VL Digital two-channel amplifier technology, the A9355 delivers 70 watts per channel. A thick, highly rigid, anti-resonant flat chassis underpins the design. It's an ideal foundation for the massive power transformer that resides within. The feeling of quality is reinforced by a thick, weighty aluminium front panel and volume control. 
Facilities include six audio inputs and two outputs, allowing use of additional power amplifiers if you feel the need to upgrade in the future. An all-discrete phono equaliser stage satisfies the needs of the growing band of vinyl record fans. Two sets of loudspeakers can be driven and there's a gold-plated headphone jack for solo listening. Acknowledging the rise in importance of the iPod, the A9355 is equipped with Onkyo's ingenious Remote Interactive RI system, as well as allowing other RI-equipped components to be controlled via the amplifier's remote control. This also means the amp is compatible with the optional £64.95 DSA2, available in black or white. Now on to Onkyo's latest CD player, the DX7355, which helps listeners extract the very best from their silver disc collection with a desirable blend of precision engineering, well-specified components and useful features. For example, this is a player that comfortably handles MP3 encoded CDs recorded on CDR or CDRW, as well as regular audio CDs. There's a quick navigation system for such discs when you've potentially dozens of tracks to search through. With a relatively slimline design, this player is nevertheless equipped with a massive transformer to ensure a stable, consistent power supply located upon a high-rigidity, anti-resonant chassis. A Wolfson Microelectronics 192kHz 24-bit DAC, especially designed for demanding digital audio applications, is employed, partnered by audiophile-grade capacitors in the output stage. Both components are designed to work together and are reasonably priced for such a competitive market. The amplifier will set you back around £300, with the CD player clocking in at £200. With two channels enjoying resurgence of late in the UK, it might be worth auditioning these products. Headphone expert Sennheiser have announced a new pair of cans which include the latest in noise reduction technology. The PXC450 NoiseGuard 2.0 will retail for £300 when released in April and are described as providing a cloak of silence so you don't hear engine noise or rail noise while travelling. And fellow passengers, of course, won't be annoyed by sound leakage from the headset. The noise-cancelling technology uses a rechargeable AAA battery and they include a talk-through button so you can auto-fade the music to hear what someone is saying without moving the phones away from your head. Many headphones claim to have this technology, but Sennheiser stress that the PXC450s are probably the world's best-sounding high-end headphones with silent technology built in. And if your batteries run out after their 20-hour life cycle, the headphones will continue to work, unlike the competition. These revolutionary headphones will be available in late April. Now, Danish home cinema giant JMO has announced an HDMI replacement for their popular DMR60 DVD receiver package. The new unit will look identical to the outgoing version and will take the new model number of DMR61, adding HDMI to the list of components and RGB inputs and outputs. The DMR unit includes a DVD player capable of playing nearly every formatted disc available, a power amplifier with multi-channel decoding technologies, a tuner for radio and a USB port for adding digital media, plus five satellite speakers and a subwoofer. The new HDMI version is available now and will cost around £600. And finally, regular listeners and forum members will know that we ran a competition at the recent Bristol Sound and Vision show to win an entire home cinema system. Well, it's with great pleasure that we announce the winner. With a score of 20 million on Burnout Revenge, Jason Ritchie, forum name Ritzy from Gwent, won a Hyundai 32-inch LCD TV, a BK Monolith subwoofer, 
a Yamaha YSP1100 sound projector, an Xbox Premium package from Shop2.net, and cord cables to connect the system together. So, congratulations to you, Jason. Brought to you by AV Forums and AVPlay.com. This is the AV Podcast. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that each week I bring you a little bit of gadget info off the cuff, so to speak. I kind of look at what I've been up to this week. As we're currently filming for the Gadget Show, obviously I've been in contact with all kinds of sexy bits of kit. Not least, I'm back to my consoles. You know, I'm a big console and gaming fan. We decided to do a, a big test to try and decide whether it was worth spending uh, a couple of thousand pounds on a state-of-the-art PC or whether, you know, a collection of, of consoles, including the Wii, the Xbox 360 with the HD DVD drive, and a PS3, which of course incorporates a Blu-ray drive, whether those three consoles were better than a cutting-edge computer. The subject was gaming, so uh, while the drives on the two consoles were important in terms of being able to watch high-def content, it really wasn't part of the test. And also I would wager that there's an awful lot of high-definition content available now online, and the PC is very well set up. I mean, my PC, for example, I run a Hoojum Qubit computer, which I've got uh, hooked up to a Samsung HD TV, and I watch loads of online content. In fact, there's a lot of online content available now that wasn't available even at Christmas. So um, if you haven't looked for a while, have a, have a, 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 a sift around for um, some high-def content available online. Legitimately, stuff you actually pay for, because I think you might be quite surprised. Anyway, I don't know why I'm going on about that, because it's not really part of the test. The test was essentially uh, simply to test the game-playing experience of those three consoles versus the PC experience. Now, of course, the PC, while expensive, uh, I think is the more flexible of the formats. There's no question that high-end NVIDIA card, like the one I had in the, in the machine, and all the water cooling and the, you know, the dual-core processors and stuff, can equally match a PS3, despite the PS3's remarkable graphics com- uh, performance and beautiful 1080p output onto this big 50-inch uh, Sony Bravo that we had. I think it was 50-inch. Um, but in terms of flexibility, I think the PC can't be beaten because, you know, multiplayer gaming was invented on the PC. I mean, if you look at the amount of online players that are subscribed to World of Warcraft, it's something like two and a half times the entire uh, subscription base of Xbox Live. And that, and that goes across all the games on Xbox Live. So I don't think in terms of online gameplay or multiplayer, or especially massive multiplayer online role-playing games like EverQuest and you know, Star Wars Galaxy and Warcraft and so on, World War II Online, there's no comparison in that field between the PC and the consoles. And so in that respect, you know, the, the PC won. In terms of value for money, though, you know, I mean, there was an awful lot of change left over having bought the three seventh-generation consoles, Wii, Xbox 360, and PS3. There was still loads of, of money left in Susie, my co-presenter's budget, because, I, I mean, I spent, I think, about two and a half grand on a, on a PC uh, that was able to shift, you know, an equivalent amount of pixels to any one of those three consoles. So in terms of value for money, I think the consoles win hands down. There is absolutely no doubt about it. And also, surprisingly, in terms of, of the available games, for me as a kind of old-school PC gamer, it actually came as something of a shock when I realised how few games are now available for the PC in comparison to new titles for the, for the consoles. I mean, the Xbox 360 game range now is, is really impressive. 
and a lot of the, the kind of titles that used to bolster the PC shelves in various stores um, have now fallen by the wayside. I mean, you can't really buy a military flight simulator anymore. You've kind of got Flight Simulator X or X-Plane if you buy it online. And that's kind of it for, for flight sims. Whereas I remember in my day, you could buy... I mean, there were like 15 or 20 flight sims available. So the kind of simulator end of PC gaming that I think used to bolster the, the, the shelves... Uh, when I used to walk into my PC game stores, you know, three or four years ago, I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside. And really, console gaming, first-person shooters, driving games, uh, and of course, you know, the sort of traditional action titles, have really come of age and and mean that in terms of choice, I think having spent a whole day with uh, with these four different uh, platforms, I would I would definitely put my vote in the console camp. The final test we did was hooked up a professional gamer a guy who's actually won several large tournaments in the US playing games like Counter-Strike and Quake and so on. We hooked him up to a heart monitor and we we basically showed him two titles on uh, my PC and two titles on the PS3 and just watched his heart. And the idea was that his, his, his kind of, you know, his biometrics would kind of betray his true feelings. And um, it was a very interesting result, if only because I noticed, and this is, you know, a complete revelation to me, that the guy's heart rate actually went down when he got into into high-stress situations within the game, like, you know, a whole load of bad guys were bearing down on him. And I thought that was really interesting, because I expected it to be a, a case of his heart kind of racing over the chart every time, you know, he got a bunch of, uh, of baddies on, it, on his six. But um, it wasn't the case. So anyway, that was an amazing... Uh, result. Now, I'm not going to tell you which of the platforms we, Xbox 360, PS3 or indeed PC, um, our professional gamer preferred. You're going to have to watch the Gadget Show for that. And this item uh, should be on in about three weeks' time. Gadget Show, of course, Monday, 7.15, Channel 5. That's it for me. Uh, back to the podcast. You're listening to the AV Podcast. Oh, worth it. Totally worth it. This week's Roundtable Discussion... Hosted by Phil Hinton. And welcome to yet another roundtable chat here on the Home Cinema Podcast. Tonight on the panel we have Stuart Wright, Seth Gecko, John Carlo, who forum members will know as Recruit, and Neil Davidson from TNW Marketing. This week we're going to discuss display technologies, where we are today, what technologies there are out there, pros and cons of those technologies and calibration. Now, to start off, I think that the thing I need to raise first is the death of CRT technologies, whether that be TVs or projectors. And, guys, are we actually seeing the death of that technology now? Well, I mean, I, from, a, from my perspective, I think of CRT projectors. I saw one recently, and I've seen it a few times now, and I think, to be honest with you, it's probably the best image I've seen to date on a projector. So, I don't know about the, the, the actual CRT projectors dying, but obviously the um, the panel side of uh, LCDs, plasmas, that's gonna, definitely going to kill off the CRT TVs. How long do you but think it'll be before, you know, Dixon's, was it Dixon's, released the um, press release saying that they were not selling VCRs anymore? Yeah. How long do you think it'll be before they, they release a, a similar note saying that they'll not be selling CRT TVs anymore? Or do you think they'll, that'll just kind of fade, that'll just happen without any fanfare at all? No, I think that will fade out. I, th- I think it will fade out in time, just like um, you know, VCRs, DVDs taken over, flat panels take over because of high def. You know, CRTs obviously was a good picture, but you don't want a you don't want a 60, 80 kilogram TV sitting in your living room 
when you can have a nice flat panel on your wall. So do you think that the technology is dead then? Because um, there's a lot of arguments out there saying that CRT still is the best picture quality. And you've, you've alluded to it, John, by saying um, mm. that the, the CRT projector you saw recently, I own a CRT projector, um, mm. Stuart has one as well. Do you still think that it, it has the, the one-upmanship on, on the panel devices or do you think... It was the image that was shown was just so... There was so much depth to it. The blacks were really black. The, the clarity, and it was actually... Um, a digital uh, high-def VHS. The I saw a copy of um, was it the Mummy Returns or the Mummy, and it was fantastic. It really, really was. Definitely the best image I've seen. I've seen the Pearl. Well, I own a Pearl, uh, Sony Pearl, and I've seen the Ruby. I haven't seen the JVC, which obviously is being raved about at the moment. But for uh, from my perspective, the, the CRT just looked awesome. The picture was superb. I think it's generally acknowledged, isn't it, that, that CRT projectors still have the best image quality. If it's no compromise, uh, you absolutely have to have the best image quality, then CRT mm. projectors are, are where it's at. Mm. But are, are there many companies still manufacturing new CRTs? Is it possible to go out and buy a new CRT projector these days? I think there's only um, the marquees that are still being made new. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think there's only one company, and that's the Marquis. They're still making the, the 9500 LCs, I think. Do Runco, are they still producing CRTs? Because I think they were one of the main uh, manufacturers, weren't they? I think no, they were all Barcos. Yeah, that, that was the thing with Runco. Right. They were all uh, Barco chassis. Mm. And uh, Barco still are, but not. But uh, is it right they're not doing it in the... In the? It's only a professional market that they're aiming at. Is that, is that correct? Pro market. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think the only model they still make is the Cine 9. Um, but even then, it's in very, very small quantities. And but that is such an—I mean, the, the the image quality from the Cine Nine is supposed to be totally awesome, isn't it? Mm. I, I've seen two or three, and yes, I've yet to see a picture on on any technology that comes close to a properly set up Cine Nine. Mm. Um, but then, so, you, so but then you're talking mega bucks for something like mm. that, even even in today's market. Is it thirty grand? Um, I think it's a bit lower than that now. I think you could pick one up for around about the twenty thousand mark, but still, a still. lot of money. Are they, is that big, the Cine 9? I mean, because that's the only thing that would uh, put me off, and that's the only reason why I went with a with a uh, you know digital projector because the size. I, well, I it has have three nine-inch tubes, so yeah. Well, for a go. start, that tells you mm. something. It's it like a, a very large suitcase. No, oh, I think it's it's even bigger than that. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a lot bigger <laughs> than that. Yeah, a lot bigger than that. <laughs> think about your twelve or nine, Stuart, and add a few inches on. Really? Oh, is it that's that's bigger than a 1209? Oh, yeah, yeah. Crikey, oh, and that yeah. thing is big. So I was, that presumably is one of the answers to, and for the sake of people listening who aren't familiar with mm. uh, CRT projectors, why people aren't buying them in droves. So it's expensive and it's big. Mm. What other reasons are there that people, that CRT is eventually going to die in favour of DLP maybe or another mm. technology? Why? I, th- I think, um, if I can jump in here, I th- think for me the thing is um, you've got to be very hands-on with a CRT you've got to know what you're doing convergence can drift you've got to be able to yeah. redo the convergence on, on on a regular basis there are some models uh, some machines which won't drift that much and there's other other machines which will drift each time you switch them on is that um, a monthly basis do you have to correct it or well I can only talk from personal experience and, and I, I have a 1997 808 uh, mm. graphics 808 from Barco and I have to touch that up once a week really um, that is 
and, and it's mainly on the blue. The blue tends to drift quite a bit. That's a lot. Um, so, I mean, th- that's the thing as well. I mean, you, you're, you're talking about technology that isn't made anymore. There are spares mm. out there at the moment, but then th- the other downside is that spares are going to dry up after a while. But the people while. who own them, they don't want to get rid of them, though. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very difficult for me to kind of replace my Barco because, I mean, although, as I've said previously, it is a quite an inconvenient lump on the floor of our of the official mm. AV Forum's home cinema, the image quality is so good. I mean, especially now we're putting HD DVD through it. Wow, it's it's just... You could be in the middle of that jung- jungle with King Kong, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's yeah. fantastic. Well, you said that to me at Bristol as well, Stuart. You said you'd gone and seen the D80 and you were thinking... Uh, uh, it's switching over and I had to ask you twice why because because yeah. I'd seen your 1209 the day before and it's an absolutely stunning piece of kit when mm. it's set up right like that and and the detail you're getting even from upscale DVDs still superb mm. yeah I think this is one of the areas where CRT undoubtedly is losing out the amount of effort required to be a CRT owner as we've already touched on is incredible um, it would cost a lot of money to get a professional to come in and do that once a week and I can assure you yeah, uh, you've got other things the, the geometry you'll never get perfect with a CRT Phil's already touched on the convergence issues grayscale goes off colour accuracy etc etc Whereas about with the focus th- what about the focus on um, CRTs is that ever a problem well it's just another that- one of those things that you need to keep touched up you can lose focus mm. out in the corners quite easily um, on a CRT but if, if you're an enthusiast who has the time to set them up and I mean Three, four days to set them up really, really well. It's true that you still won't get a better image, I don't think, than a CRT. But mm. it's the sheer inconvenience of it, I think, that puts off the general buyer. Mm. But also, one of the things that we touched on, something like the Cine 9, or, or anything really with the 9 in it, with a 9-inch tube, um, you were talking, when that was released, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds for a projector like that. And if you look at what we have, in the DLP market at that sort of money. What you're looking at is a SIM2 HT5000. I don't know if any of you guys have had the pleasure of yeah. seeing an HT5000. I, I have, and I've got to say, wow. That was really. very, very good. Yeah, Absolutely good. awesome. An awesome, awesome image. And really, that's that's what you need to be comparing the CRT with. Mm. Um, something like the D80. I think the D80 is a fantastic projector. I really, really like the, what's the, the, the D80. What's the price of that, the D80? Where does that come in price-wise? About six grand, isn't it? I think it's a little bit less than that. I don't no, think it's, it's good. Yeah, it's not exorbitant. It's not cheap, obviously, but it's not exorbitant. Um, so so you have, really, the HT5000 for me is the daddy. Uh, you get Runcos and stuff like that that are a lot more expensive, but very much a case of diminishing returns once you get up at that sort of level. I still think the HT5000 is probably the best projector that I've seen from a digital projector. And how much is that one again? It's 35,000. Uh, 30, 30, with the anamorphic lens. Yep. When you see what you can do with that projector, the, the colour management, the grayscale tracking, all of these things can all be dialed in perfectly. Uh, it obviously has a, a few convergence issues being a three-chipper, but if you can get a half pixel uh, of convergence error, well... Again, I think you would struggle to get that on a CRT right across the whole screen. The focus is superb. You know, all of these things combined together to make it a much more easy proposition to live with than a CRT. And obviously now what we should expect to see is that sort of technology trickling down into the mass market. I think if you have to, if, I mean, the, question, the original question, uh, is CRT dead? I think 
based on sales of new models in the general UK home cinema market I think I have to uh, reluctantly say that I think CRT has been dead for a while I mean it may have the the second-hand market may be thriving partly thanks to several enthusiastic and extremely competent installers not least of which those guys that, that um, frequent AV forums of course the second-hand market in CRTs because of course they're quite affordable second-hand I think mine certainly wasn't you yours wasn't you was it Phil uh, no, I only paid eleven hundred quid for mine, and that well, was when you choose. good. So, you know, you, you can Bargain. pick the technology up cheap, but I think what what Neil was saying earlier on is very true. I mean, you've got to know your way around one, uh, otherwise it's going to cost you a lot of money. I mean, I got I got a professional in to install mine uh, initially, but like I say, I mean, I've I've learned everything that I can learn, so I know how to touch it up, and I, I know when something's wrong, I know where to go and look, and all. And I think if you're going to be a CRT owner you have to be prepared to do that um, it's kind of like being a classic car owner in some respects you have to be prepared to to get your hands dirty yeah if you're going to own a crt projector i think and it's really only for the real enthusiasts um that are still sticking with them as such yeah i, I think the picture quality th- th- at the end of the battle is is what drives people to go with crt because the picture quality is so good once you get it right and once you get it set up right. But I've got to say the things that are making me think about getting rid of the Barco are in terms of convenience, um, the space that I would gain back again, and things that I could do which you can't really do with CRT, such as 235 projection with an anamorphic lens. Um, I've seen that done a few times now, and that's what I want in my room. I I want that impact of a 10-foot 235 screen. And, you know, I've seen the HT5000 that you were talking about, Neil, doing anamorphic. I can't afford that. And I think that's that's the goal, really, at the end Mm. of the day. You want to get there. That's where you want to get to in a 235 image. I think Um, the other thing about about Barcos, of course, is that these days, you know, well, HDMI is is the connector that you need. And uh, I don't think there's a Barco with an HDMI connection, is there, in it? So... In order to take the HDMI output of my DVD player, I have to, uh, c- and with a little adapter, convert it to DVI, plug right. it into an illegal box, yeah. which strips out the HDCP element of it, and it has a nice VGA output, and then it's a VGA mm. cable converting to RGB HV, that's red, green, yeah. blue, horizontal and vertical yeah. signals, yeah. In, straight into the back of the Barco, and... Um, I think it's just it's silly to have this illegal box to uh, achieve the simplest signal route. I mean, yeah, okay, I might be able to have a. Would I be able to put a scaler in there? Would that work? If I can, you have a yeah, scaler you with. You still got an HDCP problem, though. If the scaler uh, conforms to its HDMI license with HDCP, yeah, um, it won't pass from a digital to an analog output. Right, so Which there you is go. Very, very annoying. That's that's another issue, I guess. Then is that is that you're going to have to find some way of getting round uh, HDCP if if you have uh, an HDMI signal that you want to plug into your Barco. So as far as CRT is concerned, in general, CRT TVs. Yeah, I mean, uh, somebody said earlier on that they still produce the best image. Somebody and somebody else said, well, uh, yes, but everybody wants HD ready. There is, of course, an HD-ready CRT TV, isn't there? It's a Samsung, I think, although it got lousy reviews. Yeah, because the geometry was all to put on it, basically. Yeah, for for me there, there is no, there's no argument that a CRT TV produces the best image anymore. I just cannot see it. There are so many problems 
that need to be corrected. The geometry typically is awful. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those Samsung TVs, but the geometry on them is all to hell. Really, really bad. And for me, watching a TV like that now is just unbearable. Makes you uncomfortable. Uh, well, yeah, when you just... get used to a certain quality, you, you, you stick to that quality. And, yeah. you know, once you've seen HD, um, I mean, Sky HD, fantastic, as far as I'm concerned. HD DVD, brilliant. Blu-ray, again, brilliant. You get used to that quality and you see it. And then when you go back to standard definition and to watch it, you get used to it sometimes. It's too good. For me, with the CRT TV as well, getting away from the, the HD argument, when I look at them, typically, eh, at the minute, we don't have any more of the, the real quality manufacturers that were making CRTV, CRT TVs eh, that were doing them a few years ago. And you can see so many processing artifacts and picture artifacts. I guess that's a curse of what I do for a living, but it just makes it an unwatchable experience, really does. So do you think CRT TV is dead now as well? For me, absolutely. It has a place as perhaps a 14-inch for a bedroom, but nothing else. Okay, guys, I think we need to, to move the conversation on a little bit. We've covered um, CRT technology, CRT projectors and TVs. Let's move on to the new breed of TV sets and display devices, plasma and uh, LCD. And there's also um, still quite a number of rear projection sets. Uh, Sony have their X SXRD technology out there as well. So let's talk about them then. Let's start with plasma. And um, what advantages do you see plasma having? Well, for me, plasma has uh, a number of advantages. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about on the CRT was black level. And certainly plasma is the closest thing that you can get to a CRT black level. Most plasma displays that you see now have a really good black level. The other thing that I like about a plasma display is because it uses phosphors to emit the light, they have a, a certain warmth, I guess you would call it, about the image. Whereas an LCD that, that shines the light through the polarising filters, I find can be a little bit stark. Plasma tends to be a little bit more forgiving for those upscaled SD content as well. Um, and, and I think for me in general, it just has an all-round more pleasing look about it. So yes, I am a plasma owner rather than LCD. And Neil, there's a lot of talk on the forums about different artefacts that come up with, with plasma, such as uh, screen retention. Um, if you're watching something like Sky One or whatever, and the logo tends to stay there, it does go away. It's not screen burning, but it's, it's screen retention. Does that not put you off? Uh, one of the things that you'll find with screen retention, um, obviously not always, but a lot of the time, uh, screen retention can be put down to incorrect settings on the display. I, I've yet to see a plasma that was set up properly, uh, and by properly I mean the contrast and the brightness in particular being set correctly where screen burn was an issue. I mean, my plasma gets absolutely no special treatment. If the football's on, it stays on for the full half. If we're watching a show on Sky, Lost, for example, you've got those Sky logos in the top corner. There's never even a hint of retention there. But really, you need to make sure that the plasma's set up properly. One of the ones that was, of course, worst for the retention was the Pioneer 436 series. You had to be a little bit careful with those. But again, that was more to do with the fact that you could set the contrast so crazily high on those models. Uh, the newer ones, the 427Os, are not quite so bad. Um, you, they don't seem to be so uh, prone to the retention. And again, a lot of that's because you can't actually set the contrast quite as high on them as you could on the old models. 
Well, I was just going to pick up on what Neil said about the Pioneer 436. Now, I'm an owner of a Pioneer 436, and retention is um, not a major problem, but it is a problem that I see quite regularly. Um, I have had it ISF calibrated, um, but I do change um, the settings sometimes back to standard when watching normal TV, um, i.e. Sky News and Sky News, Sky One. The, the logos do stay there. Um, and that is something that I've learned to live with, but they do go away. I have to ask, is there a particular reason for changing it back to standard? Well, I did have it set up, um, and then my system was changed, because unfortunately, well, fortunately, I changed my kit quite often, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it was originally calibrated, and now it's sort of gone a bit, um, so I use different equipment, and uh, I go to standard settings sometimes on just normal sky, um, but obviously I watch most of my stuff now through the projector anyway for film viewing um, which I haven't had calibrated yet which I want to but the Pioneer is a problem I've noticed it a lot um, so it is when you say it that was a, uh, you know it just picked up on that um, and it is a yeah, problem I mean, that, yeah definitely uh, the, the, the out of the box settings as I said you could set the contrast unbelievably high on those 436's mm. uh, which, which just puts so much strain on the phosphors yeah, uh, that 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 that's where the, really the re the retention's coming from. It's not burning, mm. Um, mm. but it is retention, and yeah, you can you can see it for a little while afterwards on the four three sixes, if you're not careful with yeah. the, the the contrast and stuff like that. Neil, yeah. you said um, plasma was for you. So, in your mind, what's the differences between plasma and, and LCD technology, and why should people pay attention to what they're buying? First of all, I I have no uh, no real beef with LCD. I also own an LCD TV. Um, my main viewing is done on the plasma, though, because it has, f for me, a much more natural, uh, a film-like presentation. The LCD, because of the way that the LCD panel actually works, it, it shines light through from behind the panel through a polarised filter. And what that means is that the light is very directional when it comes out towards you. And I feel that it just has a, a, a starkness and unnaturalness about the presentation because of that. Um, th there's no sort of edge, it's all very, very sharp and, mm. and defined. But I know a lot of people do actually like that look of the, the LCD. LCD, obviously, you don't need to worry at all about the retention, although I, I obviously believe that for plasma that shouldn't be an issue for anyone to, to worry about too much either, as long as the plasma is set up correctly. The other thing with LCD is still the response time. F for me, in general, viewing that, it's not so much of a problem, but it can be an issue for people who are prone to seeing that um, in the football and stuff like that. If a long pass gets pinged out, they can find it distracting. For me, that's not such a huge issue. But the main thing with an LCD is that I find it so unforgiving of lower quality sources. Um, one of the things I hear so often day to day is from people who have purchased uh, a new flat panel TV and what they've done is they've purchased an LCD. There seems to be a, a, a strange rumour going around that LCD is a lot better than plasma, which I never understand. <laughs> um, and when they get the LCD home, they're just disappointed with it. They don't really know how to describe it, but they're just disappointed. And when you go and look at it, you know, you see much more of the macro blocking and the noise that you get in standard definition sources. The, the, the technology just seems to show these things up a lot more. Uh, again, you can correct a lot of it. You just need to set the panel up properly. You know, it's not difficult to set them up 
a lot better than what they come out of the box. But you know, the, the Joe average consumer, he probably doesn't realise that when he takes it home, that there is a lot more that you can get out of the panel. And so he sits there with his £2,000 Sony or his new Samsung or whatever else that he's bought, and he thinks to himself, well, really this image isn't as good as my old CRT. And there's no reason that they should be feeling that way. It just seems that the, the LCD highlights all of the defects in the, in the sources that we have these days, whereas the plasma for me is just a bit more forgiving. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed. Um, I had a 32-inch Samsung LCD. I actually owned so many 32-inch, uh, but the Samsung, when you fed it a standard definition, it was terrible. But as soon as you plug the Xbox 360 into it, what a superb picture! Um, and again, that's just the, you know, once you do feed a high source, you know, high-definition source into it, they, you know, you get the best benefit then from from that panel. So, Seth, you've bought a new LCD TV. How are you finding it, and what, what model was that? Um, I've got the new Sharp uh, Aquos 42-inch um, 1080p unit, the XE1, um, and I'm finding it... Uh, I really like it, actually. I had a, a Samsung 32-inch um, before this, and a lot of the noticeable problems or issues that people were complaining about with LCD screens, such as the, the motion tracking side of things, basically don't occur on this. I mean, the, the panel has a, an 8 millisecond refresh rate, um, which basically counteracts most of the fast movement issues, plus it has some uh, special filtering that uh, helps on this, as do a lot of the new LCD models. Um, the other thing that um, really impressed me, and it's something that's been touched on, um, is to do with the backlight, um, as you ha yourself had the uh, the 47-inch um, screen and had no backlight control. Um, this actually has sort of two methods. Uh, the first one is you can manually change the, the, the backlight level um, should you want to for when you um, basically do your calibration in, in the room environment. And the other thing it has is there's a little sensor at the front of the screen which detects the light um, changing in the room and will then um, either increase or lower the backlight to compensate for the light shift. So you're fairly happy with it overall then? Um, my bang balance isn't happy about it, but I am. I, I think it was, uh, I mean, compared to some of the 42-inch um, plasmas, um, a considerable drop in price. Um, I do agree that LCDs, generally speaking, are much harsher um, when, it, when it comes to picking up um, issues, but in sort of its defence and, and and mine for choosing it, I suppose, um, virtually everything I'm going to be feeding it is going to be 1080 um, mm. anyway, be it from the, uh, the Denon 3910 that I have, um, or my Blu-ray or HD DVD, or mm. indeed Xbox 360, um, yeah. and hopefully PS3. So um, I've got a 1080p nat uh, you know, panel, um, and everything I'm feeding it is going to be 1080. Um, so it's not really that much of a, a problem. Um, I do have a Telewest box. Um, uh, actually, it's Virgin Media now, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. although when you still press the button, it sort of says Virgin and Telewest stamped all over it. Um, <laughs> And the only thing that that's been used for, basically, is to make sure that it works when I've connected it to the, the screen. Um, but other than that, it, it doesn't get a look in. Um, but I don't think that it's particularly harsh on that either. Um, sure, you can 
notice compression artifacts, but I actually think it was the 42-inch panel is much more forgiving than the 32-inch panel that I had um, on that particular source. So, Neil, how crap is the uh, this, this new screen? <laughs> <laughs> Controversial. No, the sharp panels are actually uh, pretty sharp. sharp. Invested heavily in uh, LCD when it was just starting up, so they actually have some very, very good panels. Looking some of the software range. around it could be a bit better, but the, the panels yeah. themselves are very good. Neil, how important is uh, backlight control? Um, for the end user, because I'd, I reviewed the ATEC um, 47-inch LCD a, a while back, and it didn't have back panel control, and the picture was constantly washed out uh, with with the problem of of that backlight being being there all the time, and actually being able to see the the panel structure. So, it, is that a problem with all sets, or, or are some sets out there that are better, and you can adjust the, the the back panel? And how important is that? Well, obviously, there are quite a few sets out there where you can adjust the backlight, um, and it is it is a desirable feature. The the reason that the backlight is so powerful is to combat ambient light, um, basically when you have a display what you want is the light output from the display to be brighter than the ambient light falling on it um, otherwise you lose detail in the in the shadow areas now on an LCD that's one of the main strengths of LCD because it's basically just some very powerful lamps behind the screen it can fire out an unbelievable amount of light however as you say Phil what that tends to do is wash out the picture you have too much light coming out it's tiring for the eyes, etc. Now, if you have a backlight control, then you can obviously adjust the, the, the power of the lamps down a little bit. Um, and that's particularly important if you like to watch in a, in a darkened environment. Um, and certainly for evening viewing, typically when I'm viewing the TV in the evening, I'll certainly never view it in a dark room. I'll always have a, a, a lamp on or something like that just to give some ambient light. Even in that environment, a backlight control is very important, otherwise you're going to get those washed out blacks. Neil, you were at Bristol, and Pioneer, rightly or wrongly, had their, <laughs> had their uh, demonstration of LCD versus plasma, and there's a lot of conversation on the forums about that, mainly about the setup, you know, was it fair, and, and you know, should there be an ISF calibrated beforehand, and so on and so forth. Did you get a chance to look at that, and, and how, how truthful do you think that representation was by Pioneer? I felt that the Pioneer... Uh, demo was kind of unfair. I know a lot of other people at the show would have gone a lot further than me and felt that the, the it was actually a bit out of order of Pioneer to do a demo like that. When I looked at the two displays, uh, there were a number of things about the demo that, that were quite clear. Uh, first of all, the material was clearly selected to highlight the deficiencies of LCD technology. Uh, for anyone who saw it, there's a scene with a, a, a boat going underneath a bridge with a darkened sky and there was a, an effect known as dynamic noise uh, quite prevalent in that picture. Now that is, if you recall what I said a few minutes ago, uh, an LCD display tends to show up uh, noise and so on when it's not been set up correctly. And again, the, the system was set up, to me it seemed at least, to, to highlight these effects. I, I just felt it was not a fair and accurate representation of the, the technology and it was a bit naughty of Pioneer. I saw the demo as well, and uh, it certainly made LCD look very poor. And I, I, I kind of studied it on a two or three passes of the of the video loop, and uh, I, I felt that it was unfair as well because although a lot of 
people do take the uh, it was basically an out of the box setting wasn't it you know this is a pioneer plasma out of the box this is a supposedly best of LCD brands that you can get out of the box it was a Sony you know here they are side by side with the same picture going through them and you know basically the LCD looked very poor against the plasma which is obviously what Pioneer were, were in, intending to achieve but I, I felt that uh, a more scientific test which is perhaps not what Pioneer were after but more scientific test would have been to have okay let's have out-of-the-box settings I mean uh, is it not true that that all TVs even even two TVs on the same production line are going to look slightly different out of the box I don't know perhaps they are but anyway have underneath them perhaps ISF calibrated Pioneer Plasma and Sony Bravia as well and 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 then you can get an idea, can get an idea of of what the actual technology is capable of mm. and, and I and from that particular point of view I thought the Pioneer demo was skewed obvious to, obviously to me but unfortunately I would think less obviously to punters just walking through. I think for me that was one of the things that that concerned me most about the demo was that there was no way to verify that they were out of the box settings because I know what both of those displays look like out of the box and neither of them is as bad as the the Sony was made to look in that demo neither of them so so that's what that's what really concerned me about the whole demo there was a comment on the forums that if the sets were set up correctly, properly calibrated and so on, that in all intents and purposes, plasma would still probably look better. And why didn't Pioneer just do that in the first place? Well, that, that, that's actually a, a question of double relevance because Pioneer TVs are actually one of the, the only plasma TVs which have the ISF C3 interface built right into them. Pioneer as a company embraces absolutely the ISF principles of display calibration and getting the best image quality and I think that that would have been a, a fairer demo for people to understand. Uh, at a show like the Bristol show you have to remember that it's a consumer show and that would have meant a, a much more difficult sale for Pioneer. They would have had to have explained what calibration was etc etc. However, it would have been a much more representative demo and you're absolutely right, the Pioneer would have still looked significantly better than the Sony. Is that because the room was dark and the, the source material was, was of the nature that it was? Because, well, that, I mean, that, 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 yeah, I mean, that's definitely two of the things. But, for example, the new Pioneer uh, has an incredible accuracy in its colour gamut and so on once you've calibrated it. Uh, the grayscale tracking is very good. Uh, everything that you need to get a good picture is on that Pioneer model. And so you can really, really tune it in so that it looks superb. Uh, the problem with the Sony is that it has most of those settings, but not all of them. So you're never going to have the same, the same colour accuracy or anything like that as you can get on a Pioneer panel. So I think the one thing the Pioneer demo has done is, is obviously uh, create a conversation point And hopefully we haven't <coughs> been too hard on Jim and the boys from the show. And hopefully Jim might come on and, and give us his thoughts in a future round table as to the whole point of that demonstration and and maybe take it a little bit further for, for the next show. So anyway, any display technology, it's going to have certain artefacts on certain bits of material and so on. And one of these phenomenons at the moment is the old purple snake. So Neil, do you want to explain what a purple snake is and why people are talking about it on the forums? Well, sure. The, the, the purple snake is actually quite a complex artefact to discuss. 
And I think before we go any further, we should make it clear that there are actually two artifacts that people are confusing. One is an artifact which shouldn't be there. It's a, it's a, a processing problem in the panel. The second one is a setup and source artifact. Now, the first one, which is a problem on the panel, is when you see a solid, horrible lump of a bright purple colour. It's not a banding or a fizzing or anything like that. It's just a solid mass, which is clearly, clearly, clearly not supposed to be in the image. Now, I haven't seen that too often. It's pretty rare, to be honest with you, to see that in the panels. But that is a processing defect, and of course Panasonic have released a fix for that. So are we talking plasma panels now? Yeah, plasma panels only for that one. The second thing that people are confusing with purple snakes, I believe, is an effect. Now, it's actually a combination of several effects that get overlaid on top of each other. The first one is a thing called false contouring, and people may know it more as banding. Banding is basically the number of processing levels, video levels, that you have on the, dis on the display. They typically have between 8 to 10 bits, and that isn't enough to create every colour shade. So basically what you get is you get a, a banding effect in areas of, of gradiated colour. The second thing is that to try and compensate for this, plasmas do two things. They do two types of dithering. One of them is known as temporal dithering. Another one is known as spatial dithering. Temporal dithering is just varying a, a pixel's intensity with time. So rather than have you know level 1 and level 2, over time you can average it out so that you get level 1.5. Whereas a spatial dithering is where you sort of vary the intensity levels in space. You basically try and blend the shades together so that you don't get a hard line. Now what happens is in, in very, very low intensity scenes you, you get an effect where all of these things combine together so you get a thin band which has spatial and temporal dithering going on at very low intensity where there isn't enough green and what it does is it makes it looks a kind of a purple band when you go up to it where there is a sort of a dancing in the pixels the pixel dancing is all down to the way that plasma works uh, the false contouring is also down to the way plasma works and the dithering is to try and combat those two things. You can't actually see that from a normal sitting position. Um, you have to go right up to the plasma display, which obviously th these displays, a 42 or a 50 inch display, when you go right up next to it, you see things called sub-pixels, which is the, the little red, green and blue pixels that make up the colour on the display. Uh, and you can see the pixels dancing in the structure. So uh, you, once you're sitting in your normal seating position, you shouldn't be able to see too much of this effect. The second thing that really affects this is the grayscale of the display. The grayscale of a display describes how the colours uh, are blended together to make white. Uh, if you can make white correctly on a display, all of the other colours can be made correctly as well. It's just a, a ratio between the red, green and blue. And out of the box, the models in question are, are Panasonic's. They don't have a particularly accurate grayscale colours are not mixed in the correct ratio and what that does is in these dark scenes that you don't have enough of particular colours again it, it really emphasises the purpleness of this effect so hopefully that gives listeners a, a bit of an idea of what the purple snake is. It's a, a complex artefact but it's not something that should be worried about unless it's that first instance that I described a very 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 obvious processing flaw where you get a big 
a solid blob of purple. So what can people do to, uh, if, if they have got this problem, what can people do to combat it then? Well, there are a number of things that you can do. The, the easiest one is simply not to go three inches from the display uh, and look at what's going on there. Um, obviously, joking aside, the, the, the first step is to make sure that you're sitting a reasonable distance from the display. Uh, something like five feet for a 42-inch display is more than close enough. You don't want to be resolving information at the sub-pixel level. You can only resolve the information at the pixel level, otherwise you're going to start seeing these artifacts. The second thing is that people should ensure that the display is set up correctly as part of their system. What that means is that they have the brightness, the contrast set correctly. Crucial, crucial things to have done because if you don't have those set correctly, you're reducing the dynamic range that can be displayed on the screen. Now, a DVD only has 256 different shades for each of the red, green and blue colours. So if you have the brightness or the contrast set correctly, you're missing out on some of that information that's in the screen and you're only going to make banding worse, you're going to make the, the, the purple snakes phenomenon, as it's becoming known, uh, a little bit worse. Uh, all of these problems. The final thing that they should look to do is have the, the grayscale. Um, and on some displays, for example Pioneer and Fujitsu, they have a thing called a colour management system. They should also be set correctly. And the more of these items that you can do, the better and more accurate the picture becomes and less and less of these artefacts become visible on the screen. Neil, this brings us on to um, our last subject of the night, which is proper calibration of your display device. We've, uh, we've alluded to it all the way through our conversation tonight that uh, there is one calibration technique called ISF, which is the Image Science Foundation. But there are other ways which, which people can use to calibrate their the screens as well, such as uh, calibration DVDs and so on. So let's start with calibration DVDs and what people can do themselves to make sure that the, the display device is, is looking good. And then let's move on to ISF calibration and what it entails. Sure. Um, what people can do with a setup DVD is they can actually do quite a lot of the things that you need to do to get a good image. A setup DVD will allow you to set the brightness, the contrast, the colour saturation and the sharpness of the display correctly. And if you can get those four things right, you'll be well on the way to a good picture. By getting the brightness control set up correctly, you're actually adjusting the black level on the display so that you will not be losing any uh, shadow detail, but at the same time, uh, you won't have grey blacks, you know, the picture won't have that washed out look that you so often see with out-of-the-box settings. The contrast control is next, and this sets the, the white level of the display. If you set the white level incorrectly, you get a thing called white clipping, and basically, when you get white clipping, the brightest parts of the image all just compress together. Um, you lose the, the, the dynamics and things look very flat and blown out. You can be amazed at the amount of extra detail that you can uh, gain back by setting the contrast control correctly. If you set the colour saturation properly, people should, in theory, look a lot more natural on the screen. A good test for the colour saturation is if you're watching uh, Sky News or BBC News 24, if the presenters look as if they've been on holiday for five months or <laughs> got locked under a sunbed, then you can tell probably that there are some problems with the colour saturation and you want to try and click that down a bit until they actually look like real people. 
I suppose um, people should avoid uh, looking at David Dickinson, or else they'll think that well, yes, he's well out. He's, he, he's not a good test pattern to use, for sure. <laughs> um, and when setting the colour saturation, people sometimes think that the colours look a little bit washed out once they've set it properly. But what I would encourage people to do is actually, you know, just, just look at your, the back of your hand or something like that when you're setting these things. Skin is not a vivid orange colour, typically. Um, it's much more pale than that, usually for... For, for, for normal skin tones and, and you can use that as a reference for what you're seeing on the, on the screen. The final thing and perhaps the most important thing uh, for people to set correctly is the sharpness control. One of the things that I hear so often is oh the image doesn't look sharp and people then grab the remote control and crank the sharpness control up to its full level mm. which I, I don't know if you've ever seen it but it just looks absolutely abysmal what the sharpness control does is it actually adds an artificial band around edges of the, the image. The, the display actually looks for high frequency data in the video signal and it adds a, 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 an overshoot which presents itself as a white band and the higher you set the sharpness control the thicker and more obvious the band becomes around all of this detail. So by setting the sharpness control too high what people are actually doing is disguising detail that is available within the picture rather than showing more detail. Um, on most displays you'll find that the correct position for the sharpness control is zero. There are a few exceptions to this. The Fujitsu's, for example, you can go usually a lot lower than zero to have the sharpness control set correctly. But if you get that control set correctly, suddenly a lot of the other problems that you have, the noise suddenly decreases in particular on LCDs you will notice a big improvement in the picture quality by reducing the sharpness control um, so it's a very 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 important control for people to get set correctly I really can't emphasize enough if you can get the sharpness control done your whole picture is going to look a lot better um, you can actually do these four settings using any of the, the standard test DVDs that are out there you have the ISF DVD of course um, which aims to tell people how to do these without using normal test patterns, which can sometimes be a bit confusing. Um, you have old favourites like Digital Video Essentials and Avia, which use the more standard test patterns um, to get the image correct. Uh, there's actually also, uh, just to give a plug to an AV Forums member called Merifon, uh, has posted a, a, a free setup DVD um, that AV Forums members can download. I'm not 100% sure how absolutely accurate everything is, but as a free reference tool, it's absolutely fantastic, and people can certainly give that a try without uh, spending any money. Neil, I'll so just jump in there as well, because there is another reference point which people can use on the forums. If they go to the DLP and LCD forums, um, Gary Lightfoot has done quite a comprehensive um, overview of setups and so on, and what, what they should be looking for in the test patterns. Um, so we'll give Gary a, a plug as well for his calibration tip thread which you can find in the DLP and I found LCD that very forums. useful. Yeah, a lot of people have found that, that information from Gary very useful. Um, Gary refers to the DVE disc uh, as part of that, but you should find the patterns uh, that he refers to on most of the setup DVDs, uh, so people can certainly go in there and give that one a try with no problems at all. Can people get the best out of their screens themselves, though, or do they need some, a prof professional to come in and do it for them? Well, this is what we're going to come on to next. The, the four controls that I've discussed there are commonly known as the user controls. 
Um, these are things that anyone can set on their display as long as they have access to some sort of reference material. It's almost impossible to set this accurately by eye for someone who hasn't been doing it for a long time. Um, and even then it's difficult, I can assure you. Uh, so if people get themselves a reference that they can use, uh, as I say there are a number of DVDs out there, they will be able to set these four controls quite accurately. There should be no reason not to have a good accurate user control setup. Now the next stage in getting uh, an accurate image which is free of artifacts is to look at the, the ISF calibration as we've already discussed. Um, and an ISF calibration, of course those four user controls are set um, but typically it goes a lot further than that. Uh, one of the things I've already mentioned tonight is the grayscale of a display. Now, on a display, if you have the color of white set correctly, all of the other colors will be re reproduced much, much more accurately than they will be if the color of white is incorrect. And this is what the grayscale does for you. Um, so by setting the grayscale, you're not just having grays uh, look correct, you're actually making sure that all of the colors on the display are rendered much more accurately. And something that I mentioned on the Pioneer and Fujitsu models, and also quite a few DLP projectors have this now, um, some of the LCDs, is a thing called a color management system. And what a color management system allows you to do is actually go in and correct the colors that are being displayed on the TV or on the, the projection screen. Um, the display actually has processing built into it so that you can dial everything in very, very accurately. There are actual standards published uh, that all material uh, is created adhering to these standards. And so by having the display set to follow these standards, you know that you're enjoying an image exactly as the director or whoever it was that created that content was wanting you to see it. One of the examples that's been used for such a long time now is in the Matrix. Uh, when he's in the Matrix, it's green. When he's out of the Matrix, it's blue. Um, and there are so many, so many displays where you can't actually tell that distinction. Um, but that, that was a decision made by the, the, the director of the film. To do a full ISF calibration, you need to use measuring equipment. In particular, the grayscale and the color management, you need to be able to measure what those values actually are on the screen so that you can be sure that you're adhering to the standards. There are some other tools out there now that, that people can buy if they want to and try and do this themselves, but you really need to have an understanding of some of the underlying theory in order to get that done correctly. And someone who is offering ISF calibration has actually gone through a lengthy and quite difficult training course that, that gives them all of the information and knowledge that they need to be able to, to set up the displays accurately. Neil, how important is it to have your, your display device properly calibrated? Well, I believe that it's uh, extremely important for anyone who really appreciates a good image quality. Uh, anyone who buys a projector or anyone who's spending you know, a couple of thousand pounds on a, a nice plasma display, I, I think owes it to themselves to uh, really get the best image quality. Now, there's another interesting side effect uh, which is actually described in the new widescreen review magazine. In California, the ISF has been commissioned to do some uh, research onto the power consumption from displays um, and what they found was that a correctly calibrated display used up to 30% less energy than an incorrectly calibrated display. Oh, blimey. <laughs> um, mm. So uh, in these days of global warming and stuff like that, 
that's not a prime reason for getting the ISF calibration done because obviously you're looking to get the most accurate image. But for people who are using projectors and, and plasma displays and so on, these things use quite a lot of electricity. Um, typically a calibrated display will be a bit more efficient, um, which is a quite a nice side effect to have. Uh, and you'll often find that the, the lifespan will be increased as well. John, you've had ISF done to your uh, system in the past. How big a difference did you notice once you'd had the proper calibration done? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, obviously, as I said, I did change. I have changed a lot of kits, so I need to get mine mine redone. But um, I did have Gordon um, from Convergent come up and do my calibration um, about a year ago now, and it it does make a difference to to you to your viewing uh, especially I found on my DVD sources um, and um, I also use Pixel Magic Box but it yeah it's, it, it's improved the picture and I think to be honest with you if you are spending a lot of money on, on, on kit and especially in this hobby it does <laughs> people more or less do um, you really need to get it done properly and, and having someone come over and actually do an ISF calibration it takes a few hours and obviously the kit they're using is calibrated and you just can't do that as a gen you know as a as a normal Joe public you just can't do that you haven't got the the ability but it's been interesting obviously to to hear from from Neil in regards to how he's told us about you know the different settings that you can use and they are there um, and it's interesting to know what they actually do the brightness the sharpness um, one thing I did pick up on was the uh, sharpness, which is edge enhancement, and some people do do go overboard with that, and it's a it is really noticeable on some, and and you you know what to do. You need you need to turn that back down. Um, but yeah, ISF calibration is is something that I need to have done now for my for my projector. It's running, um, and it has to be done properly. Okay, guys. Well, we're running rapidly out of time this evening. But I think we've covered most of the bases that we wanted to cover tonight. And um, obviously thanks to Neil for a lot of his input tonight, which has been fascinating stuff. And yeah. I'm sure uh, our listeners have, have picked up on quite a few um, bit, uh, tips here and there. And uh, they'll go away and hopefully properly calibrate their, their display systems now. ISF, I think, is something we need to talk about in a lot more detail. Um, and hopefully we'll do that at some other stage down the line with these round tables. So all I need to do now is thank our contributors tonight and thanks, first of all, to Neil from uh, T&W Marketing. Thanks to John Carlo, Seth Gecko and Stuart Wright. That's all we've got time for on this podcast and tune in next week where we have more of the same on our roundtable. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. If you have any questions for our panel guests on future roundtable discussions or you would like to find out more about the subjects we've discussed this week and ask specific questions, then please email help at avpodcast.co.uk. That's help at avpodcast.co.uk and we will raise your questions and points in future episodes. If you have any questions regarding the calibration and setup of your system, problems with specific products, seeing artefacts which you don't understand, or any other AV-related problem, please feel free to email us and we will put the subject to the relevant experts for discussion. And if you have any ideas for subjects to cover in future roundtable discussions, send that email in to us. This is your podcast and we want you to benefit from the help available from other forum members and industry personalities we invite to discuss topics on the roundtables. 
That email address again is help at avpodcast.co.uk, help at avpodcast.co.uk, and we look forward to hearing from you. Jason. And that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Don't forget to download this week's Movies and Games editions of the AV Podcast. As we now produce three separate casts, you'll need to update your RSS feeds. More information can be found in the podcast forum at www.avforums.com. This is Jason Bradbury saying thanks for listening. Stay subscribed and tell your friends. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.